a sort of an answer or a biblical, not a, really an explanation, but certainly a, a biblical piece of information or a biblical response, let's just say that, response to these mass shootings, these catastrophes, these disasters. And I want to tell you what I think the Bible says about it. And maybe it'll be a source of encouragement to you. Amen. So I started thinking about it and I said, what did Jesus say about mass murders, mass shooting? Well, there weren't shootings, but acts of violence, acts of loss of life, whether they were natural or man-made. And I came on this passage that I've talked about before, but I have a different take on it after this Uvalde situation, which I think was partially avoidable. Uh, my heart goes out to the families. My heart goes out to uh, educators and teachers around the world that are in situations where this could possibly bring fear and uncertainty in terms of their profession. But so-called soft targets are not just limited to schools. Churches are also a part of that. We know what happened in South Carolina at the church there. Uh, supermarkets, what just happened in Buffalo. Um, places like malls. We know there have been multiple mall shootings throughout the country. And so I, I just really started thinking about two passages of scripture that I think might help shed some light. One is in Luke and one is in Job. Let me read to you one that's in Luke. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation just because I think it makes it a little clearer. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 13 about a similar situation. It's amazing because in, in our situation the other day it was 19 kids. This was 18 people. In Luke 13, 1, it says, About this time Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Can you imagine people coming to church? People coming to church and being murdered in church. Well, we've seen this before, right? And I don't, I, I'm, I'm hoping that I can say this to you so that it doesn't desensitize you to these atrocities. But I want you to be aware that they're not completely unprecedented. That stuff like this was going on as far back as the book of Genesis, which I'm going to share with you in a few seconds. But it says here in verse 2 of Luke chapter 13, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? So let me just kind of point, let me just kind of create this picture right quick. Jesus was, I don't know if he was in a, at a teaching site if he was doing a, a sort of a, a preaching service or a teaching service, or I don't know exactly what the venue was, but somebody came up to him and said, Jesus, did you hear that there were some people at the temple worshiping? That's what making a sacrifice is, worshiping, giving, honoring, sacrificing to God. And Pilate sent a battalion of soldiers and killed them. He mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices that they were offering. And they wanted to know, what's your take on that? What's your opinion? How do you feel about that? You're God in the flesh. We just learned this morning that Jesus is God incarnate. How do you feel about that, Jesus? And here's what Jesus said. 
Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why you think they suffered or died? That was Jesus' response. So Jesus responded to a question with a question. With a question that was designed to cause the asker or the person that presented the original question to think about what they were saying. Because he was not just listening to their words, he was listening to the sentiment of their heart. What they were really saying, according to Jesus, is that what did these people do wrong that caused them to be murdered and massacred in the church while they were offering a sacrifice to the Lord? That's what they were really asking. Jesus, isn't it great how the Lord just cuts to the chase? We dance around the tulip bush. We try to be politically correct, and we try to say things and couch them in just the right phrases. The Lord just says, here's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say that they did something bad. They, you know, and that's why I said I'm going to share with you. I won't even share with you. I'll just tell you. Job's three so-called friends were the same way. If you start at Job chapter 3, Job chapter 3, his friends weigh in. And during the entire chapter 3 of Job, put this in your notes to read when you get home. His three friends sat silent for seven days and seven nights and didn't say a word. Job probably wished they would have stayed that way. Because for the next 35 chapters or so, they just un unleashed all kind of negativity and judgment and accusations on Job, basically saying, dude, no one gets this level of punishment without having deserved it. What did you do? You need to repent. You're horrible. You have some hidden sin. There's something going on in your life, Job, for God to turn on you like this. So-called friends, where was the consolation? Where was the sympathy? Where was the mercy? Where was the love? So, this is a similar situation. Fast forward to the New Testament, some 400 years later, actually almost 2,000 years later, depending on when Job was written. Some think that it was one of the earliest books in the Bible written even before Moses wrote Genesis. Doesn't mean that it came in that time frame, timeline, but it was written early. So this could be two to 4,000 years later, a similar question is asked to Jesus. Why did these people die? What did they do so bad to deserve this kind of death? And Jesus said, you think they were worse than anybody else? Is that why they suffered? Jesus, in verse 3, he continues to answer, not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And then Jesus brought up his own natural disaster. He said, and what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them were they worse were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem no so what he said oh you can think of a disaster I can tell you another one where 18 people died innocently by at by no fault of their own they were working a tower fell on them and killed them so the question that people asked then just so that you guys know that this is not a 21st century Western culture question. And the question that people ask today is, why do bad things happen to good people? Let me give you four answers, four answers that I wrote down in my notes that you should not make the mistake of assuming. Number one, 
bad things don't happen to good people because a they're suffering in proportion to their sinfulness that is it's not because they did something necessarily to deserve it number one don't think that every bad thing is always god's punishment or retaliation for what someone did number two i wrote an assumption that people often make that is false that tragedy is a sure sign of God's judgment. Not necessarily. If you look at Job again, in Job chapter 1, by which Job had no privy to, Job did not know that God and Satan had had a discussion involving his name and that he was going to be the object of a situation that would change his life forever. Job was not privy to that. How many things are we not privy to? And we don't understand the circumstances, but we just go along because what else can we do? Job's statement was classic in Job chapter 2. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I didn't bring anything into this world, I'm not going to take anything out. Here's one other thing that people make an assumption that is a bad assumption to make. That bad things only happen to bad people. Well, if that was the case, then Jesus would have never been crucified, right? Why was he crucified if he was not bad? Bad and good don't always determine what circumstances God brings into our lives. Here's another thing that people will say often, that God isn't fair. I'm going to address that in a second. But God is more than fair. We don't want God to be fair. Trust me. If God were fair, we would be in bad shape. We don't want God to be fair. We want God to be merciful. We want God to be compassionate. We want God to be gracious. We don't want God to be fair because we stand no chance if God is fair because we're not good enough to deserve God's goodness. Amen? God, all of God's goodness to us, all of his gifts to us are acts of grace and kindness. They're not acts of merit and compensation and then the fifth thing that we make wrong as such assumptions about is that we are allowed to make judgments on why things happen and we can determine the mind of God no we can't don't play God don't act like we know right because we don't know we don't know and so here's five responses that I came up with that I think that we should use and think about when we come into horrible circumstances like what happened the other day in Uvalde, Texas, to those beautiful 19 little kids and the two teachers and the other people that are still in the hospital recovering of injuries and wounds and our prayers go out to them completely. Is number one I wrote in my notes that we should think about is God is good all the time. I know you're thinking, how can you possibly say that? I didn't say it. The word of God says it. In Psalms 107, 1, it says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. God is always good. Even Job knew that. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Our, our response, listen. Our response to God should not be based on our circumstances. Amen? 
That probably should have been a Monday morning moment. But our response to God should not be based on our circumstances. Our response to God should be based on who he is. Who he is. Not what happens to us, but who God is. And God is good. Here's what Psalms 186.5 says. For thou, O Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all of them that call upon thee. God is good all the time. That's statement number one. That's the truth. Here's, here's truth number two that I want you to take note of. We don't know the mind of God. We can't figure God out. It's folly to try to understand and assign a reason for what happened a few days ago in Texas. We don't know why this guy from across the country drove to Buffalo, New York to a Topps supermarket to just start shooting people in the supermarket. Where's the rationale there? Here's what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 2.16 it says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct God? Who knows God's mind? I, I, I love this other one in Romans 11.33. It says, of the death and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. Amen? We don't understand. And, of course, the scripture that I love to use so much is Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says that the secret things belong to God. And the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we might obey the words of this law. That's Deuteronomy 29, 29. In other words, secret things, God is not obligated, nor is, is he mandated to share with us everything he is doing. He does not have to give an account for his actions. He is God. He answers to no one. No one can instruct him, as it said, and no one can correct him. God does what he does. He has his reasons. We don't know why. We don't have to agree with them. We certainly don't have to like them. But they're still God's choices. Maybe one day, as the old saints used to say, by and by, we'll understand it better. Maybe one day in glory, God will see fit to share with us why he did something back in 1963. And we will get our explanation. But until then, on this side of glory, we have to just trust him and say, as it says in Romans 28, that all things work together for good to those who know the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. Look at this other scripture that I came up with, and I really love this because this really uh, says a lot to me. And, I, and I've shared it with you guys so many times. It's Genesis 50, 20. I don't even have to read it. I can quote it because it's such a killer verse. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Joseph was wrongly accused by his master's wife, Potiphar's wife. Don't even know her name. Joe was left to rot in prison by the butler and the baker who got released because he interpreted their dream. Now, granted, one of them had his head cut off, but the other guy could have spoken up. Eventually, he did. But the point I'm making is that Job was totally rejected, mistreated, forgotten, and sold into slavery. And, and, and when he finally met up with his brothers, because I know what some of y'all would have done. When those brothers came and now you're second in control of Egypt, the eminent power on earth, you have the ability to control a person's life. You can call the security guards and say, execute all of them. 
that Joseph, that guy who could have extracted his pound of flesh, he said in Genesis 50, 20 to his brothers, to the 10, maybe 11 was there. I don't know if, if uh, Benjamin was there yet, but I know 10. Was, he said, you, what you did, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good that many people would be saved alive. We don't know. We don't know. We can't in our wildest imagination explain how Joseph could have been treated like that just for wearing a coat of many colors. How his brothers could despise and hate him so much. How his master could believe his, well, yeah, I, I can see him believing his wife over Joseph. You don't necessarily want to take somebody else's word, especially a Hebrew slave over your wife. So I kind of get Potiphar. Um, but what I don't get is the butler and the baker that were in prison with him who shared the same plight, kind of like the guy on the other side of the cross with Jesus hurling accusations and insults against Jesus. And he laying on the, he hanging on the cross dying himself. But the point that I'm making is that Joseph couldn't figure out why God was putting him through that. But God had a plan. A plan that he did not disclose to Joseph, but on a need-to-know basis. We don't know why those kids are, I believe, in heaven, according to something that David wrote. When God took David's and Bathsheba's first son, the one that was conceived out of wedlock, uh, David said, I, he can't come to me, but I will go to him. I, I happen to believe that I believe the Lord saves little children. I, I can't tell you that it's incontrovertible evidence, but from what I can understand in Scripture, I believe so. I said number three in my notes, it's impossible to understand how evil and how ruthless mankind can be. I looked up a stat that I thought was interesting. It, it, I found this on the internet, so take it for what it's worth. But I checked three or four sites to try to see if I could corroborate it. It says the United States is third in murders throughout the world. Third. By, by the way, would you like to know who was first and second? Uh, first was El Salvador. Second was Honduras. And Venezuela was like right there next to the United States. But here's what was interesting, and please, no offense to any of, the, any of those that are online that live in these cities. The United States is third in the world in murders. We have a fascination with guns that's unbelievable. By the way, how is this kid 18 years old with several juvenile arrests, several juvenile uh, citations? The police have been to his grandmother's house on calls for him multiple, multiple times. The guy had severe depression, bullying syndrome, all kinds of issues with his father. His mother was on drugs. How does this guy go and buy two AR-15s, long rifles? How, how does this guy buy 300 rounds of ammunition on his signature alone, even after a background check? Okay, here's what I found out. The United States is number three worldwide in murders. Watch this. However, if you remove Chicago, Detroit, Washington, D.C., St. Louis, and New Orleans, no offense, the United States is 189th out of 193 countries in the world. And by the way, those five cities that I just named have some of the strictest gun laws in the nation. 
they is they are at least as strict as the gun laws are in the federal government why why did i look that up i looked that up because my next point was that because of 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 any sort of any regulations or anything else god has a reason for allowing what he had happen to happen and it probably this is my opinion it probably would have happened another way i heard a commentator say only in the united states do we go around shooting kids in schools but i looked up some other information and said no because that's because in other countries like england and ireland and Italy and Russia and Ukraine and China and Japan they blow up cars car bombings outnumber ours you would think the mafia moved from the United States and moved in all these countries there they have other ways because man is cruel and my point is it's impossible to understand how ruthless man is Jeremiah 17 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and the, and Jeremiah concludes who can know it how could a bad guy be so evil? How can you have that much hatred at 18? You ain't lived long enough to be that angry. You haven't experienced enough to be that upset with the world. You can't be that depressed. The Bible says in Mark 7, 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, and watch this one, murder. In Genesis 6, it says, and the, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and you guys know the rest of it, that every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of men was fully set in them to commit evil continually. That's who we are. I'm sorry. That's who we are. We live and work and go to school and go grocery shopping among potential mass murderers every day. And some of them don't even know who they are because the Bible says, who can know the heart of man? Who can know how desperately wicked and evil and ruthless men can be to other men? The Bible says we don't even know our own heart. That's why the Lord has to change our heart. Give us a new heart, a clean heart. David said in Psalms 51 that he said, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, renew in me a right spirit. In other words, I'm... I'm I'm defective from the heart up. I'm messed up from the inside, not the outside. People start blaming things like Call of Duty and all the murders in Hollywood and on TV and all the games and forth. Listen, listen, it's not what we see on the outside that influences us. Man could be wicked without Grand Theft Auto. Man could be wicked without Call of Duty. Man could be wicked without Hollywood and a murder of minute on TVs and Law and Order and all the others. We don't need that to influence us. We did pretty bad back in Genesis when there was no television. The Bible says it was the Bible says to 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 give the exact quote that it was set in the heart of man to do evil continually. People were murdering and killing back in the days of Nimrod. That's Genesis 5, pre-flood. So it doesn't, make, it doesn't take technology and the internet to make us evil. We're evil at birth, unfortunately. Other than Adam and Eve, all the rest of us was born into sin and shaped in iniquity, according to Scripture. Let me wrap this up. My fourth, my fourth point, next to the last point, is 
I started with the question, why does bad things happen to good people? I said in my notes here, none of us are good anyway. Oops. None of us are good. Remember the conversation that Jesus had with the rich young ruler? I think it's in Luke 16 or 18. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, hey, good master, what can I do that I might gain eternal life? And so the Lord checked him right out the gate and said, dude, first of all, why are you calling me good? Code, explain that, Pastor Will. It means, like, do you even know what good means? Do you, why are you calling me good? Are you trying to, you know, impress me with your theology? Or do you really understand that I'm good? In other words, do you even know what good means? Jesus said on another occasion that none is good but the Father. I love the fact that we think that we're good. And uh, Jesus said in, in, first, in, in Luke 18, 19, he says, no one is good except God alone. In other words, absolute goodness. We may think that we're okay, but in the absolute sense of the word, we're not good. We can't claim to be good. I'm sorry. Not insulting anyone. You are good to me. I love all y'all. But, but God knows your thoughts in the deep of the night when ain't nobody listening, watching, and can't hear or see you. God knows who you really is. I said that on purpose. <laughs> God knows who we really, he knows who we are, right? He knows us. We can't hide from him. And I, I, I love the fact that Ecclesiastes tells us that, uh, that we will continue to do wrong, Ecclesiastes 8.11. As long as we get away with it, it says, we will continue to do it. Look that up in your leisure, Ecclesiastes 8.11. Matter of fact, read that whole chapter. It's a killer. I love Ecclesiastes 8 because uh, Solomon drops some amazing nuggets in that. But the point that he was making was as long as we feel we can get away with it, we will continue to do sin until something stops us. I looked this up. After 9-11, after 9-11, churches were packed for the next six weeks. People were coming to church that had never darkened the door of a church before. I remember listening to the senators in Capitol uh, and the congressmen outside on the Capitol steps, you know, singing God bless America. You know, I remember that I was reading that churches were just overflowing. And then as time went on, six months later, attendance dropped. Eight months later, attendance dropped. A year later, attendance dropped. By 2003, people were back to normal. <laughs> and like 9-11 never happened. We have short memories, and we are always about what's going on in our lives right now. Here's my last point, and I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Number five, this probably could have been the Monday morning moment, but it wasn't. My point is, we don't get what we deserve, and we get what we don't deserve. Let me say it again. We don't get what we do deserve. And we don't deserve what we get. Explain that, Pastor Will, because you kind of confused me there. Okay, well, I'll tell you what it means. Romans 1, chapter 8, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says in the English Standard Version, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were sinners, Christ died for us. What am I saying? I'm saying what we really deserve 
all of us actually deserve Uvalde, Columbine, Buffalo, Connecticut. All of us deserve what happened in Jerusalem when the tower fell or what happened in Galilee when, when Pilate mixed the blood of the worshipers with their sacrifices. If we were honest, all of us deserve that. The Bible says that for the wages of sin is what? And if you've ever sinned once in your life, guess what? You, you and I are deserving of death, right? Whatever way God chooses, we're all guilty. What I think we should be saying is, why isn't there a Uvalde every day? Why isn't there a Columbine every day? Why isn't there a Buffalo at every supermarket in the world? It's really because of God's grace and mercy. I mean, that's what Jesus was saying back, way back in Luke 13. None of us deserve to say that we live good enough where we can be exempt of Columbine or Uvalde or Buffalo. None of us have the right to say that we are better than that and therefore that would never happen to me. We are all guilty according to the word of God. And I think that the, the, the point that I'm making here is that what we really should be saying is, Lord, I thank you that every day a school isn't being shot up. I thank you every day that a supermarket isn't being shot up. I thank you every day that a movie theater isn't being shot up. Especially since I want to go see Top Gun tomorrow. I thank you every, no, just kidding. I thank you every day that, that businesses and postal workers aren't going postal. Every post office in America or every workplace. I was, I was, in a, I was involved in a separation where a guy got terminated and uh, I was, because I'm the IT guy, they wanted me there. They called in, Justin, they called in Willoughby Police. They, had, they were armed because they wanted to make sure this guy was known to own guns. They wanted to make sure that nothing was going to go down. And I'm thinking, like, I wish you guys would have told me that before you called me in. Because guess what? I can remote into these servers from home. I don't really need to be here to cancel his account and take his credentials and profile away, especially if you're thinking some gunplay is going to be going down. That's the, the thing that we should be thanking God for is that there is not a disaster like this all over all the time. And I'm sure there is somewhere in the world some catastrophe occurring but what about God's grace and mercy that we have all experienced in this room? The Lord has been better to us than we could ever be to ourselves. He's given us way more than we deserve. And while we don't, while we are sad and our hearts are broken and we grieve over the loss of life that's senseless and stupid and without any reason, we also know that God is good. And that he continues to have mercy and grace on the majority of us. Because none of us deserve anything more. God is just so good. I put in my final scripture, Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love. Actually, I had that song I was going to play it a couple weeks ago just during altar call. And E flat, the steadfast love of the Lord never ends. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. 
you guys should check out this video by Jonathan um, by Jonathan McReynolds. He is it McReynolds? Yeah. Okay. He does this video where he's singing the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's um, it's an excellent song. Several people have sang sang this song, but he does a beautiful rendition. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. Amen. What a great promise. That's Lamentations 3, 22, 23, and 24. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning. We ask you to help us to not only hear your word, but as James 1.22, may we be doers of your word. We didn't talk much about Revelation today. Maybe we will next week, but I just felt that we wanted to share, Lord, from our heart about this disaster and some things that we can process from your word to help us cope with this grief and this loss and this senseless loss of life. And we just ask you, Lord, to help us to be a source of encouragement to others that may not understand why an 18-year-old goes into a classroom and shoots up innocent kids and teachers, but that we know, Lord, that you are still good all the time, and we know that your grace and your mercy endureth forever, and we know, Lord, that you are kind and loving in spite of the evil men that roam the earth, and we know, Lord, that we may look at all of this evil and see it but we know lord that you are working good in our lives and you are working good in our midst and in our world and we thank you we praise you we trust you and lord may this you may this morning may you be glorified and your people edified in jesus name amen amen god bless you